0: Welcome to Just a GP. This week, this episode, today, I have the opportunity, along with Ash and Beck, to interview Ellie Warren. Ellie Warren is the most amazing GP. She's inspired me since she was a registrar. uh, When I had the opportunity to award her with the inaugural Dr. Jeremy Bunker Award for GP Synergy, because of work she'd done in setting up a... Aboriginal Health Service in her practice in Bathurst and we're here to talk to Ellie because of some more work she's been doing with her Aboriginal Health Service hat on but I'd like to hand over to Ellie first and say hi and welcome.
1: Oh thanks Charlotte, that's a lovely introduction, I'm uh, grateful for that one, it's nice to be here.
0: Well we're delighted to have you, aren't we everybody? Absolutely, Yes. Welcome. <laughs> So Ellie, before we I, we get you to chat more, I'm going to just throw you into telling everybody what has been a highlight of your week this week.
1: A uh, highlight of my week this week is I've been making a short film with my kids. So we've been filming Fluffy Toy Story, <laughs> the sort of fifth version of Toy Story, if you will. And we were filming one scene in particular where the bad penguin was going to push off a Lego, a prize Lego piece off the bedside table and I thought that I had pretty good catching skills and could catch it out of shot. And, of course, when it came to the crunch, I I dropped the Lego piece and it smashed everywhere and we all fell about laughing. But luckily it went back together and we can continue filming over the weekend. That sounds awesome and so much fun.
0: What a great thing to do with your kids. So are you a, a filmmaker
1: in the making? Not at all, though. No, we have uh, filmed one other movie. It was a horror movie called It Came From The Deep, a sequel to a film that my dad made with us when we were kids, and it's about a seaweed monster that comes out of the ocean and kills everybody in the family. Pretty gory, but uh, B-grade funny. <laughs>
0: That's like we need some movies attached to the side of this podcast, girls.
2: <laughs> your own YouTube channel, Ellie.
0: Really? Ash, what's been a highlight of your week?
2: I won a competition. I never. Whoa,
0: what competition <laughs> did you win?
2: Well, I never win competitions. And for the first time ever in my life, I'm, well, in terms of, you know, those promotion type competitions, I got this phone call from a online clothes store that I use saying, you won our competition that I didn't think I entered and we're going to send you a free skirt. (laughs) That is amazing. So have you got the skirt yet or was it just a
0: fishing exercise?
2: No, I haven't. Like, Yeah, and the funny thing was is that I looked at buying the skirt and I decided, no, I've spent too much already. I really shouldn't buy the skirt and then they sent it to me anyway.
0: That's amazing. Yeah, you should have more thoughts like that more often. You might get more, more, and more clothes out of it.
1: <laughs>
0: so Beth, what's been your highlight? Um,
3: I think my highlight—I've actually just come from. I gave a lecture to the first-year medical students. So at this stage, they're only three weeks into their medical degree, so they're very, very new. About, and fresh and excited. I know they're so amazing about bias and privilege and what it is that you bring to your consult and to your medical experience and how that shapes your view and perception of the world. And I think it's a really nice thing to have that conversation so early in a medical degree about why you're different and what you bring and it really made me reflect a lot on some of the consults I've had this week as well as just the general niceness of reflecting on how long it's been since I've been sitting where they're sitting because I actually literally sat in their seat 15 years ago and about how much has changed about my bias and privilege since then. It's just a really nice reflective process.
0: Awesome. Thanks for sharing that.
2: I totally agree. I think that's amazing to have early on in in a medical degree and for people to start viewing themselves in that lens early is really important for them what comes later as you start to learn about differences in population health and differences in different parts of society and all sorts of more complex social determinants of health. I think that that's amazing that it's in the first month of the program. Yeah,
0: yeah I, what I'd love to have at that time, too, is also a, a session on systems thinking and the difference between specialisation and generalism and stuff, too, mm. just to get them to think about the ways in which they think and organise those thoughts totally. in a clinical sort of output way. Yeah, Totally. So I might share my highlight, which is actually related to another podcast sharing when Ash talked about some shoes that I might like to go running in. And so my highlight this week was actually having been very, very splurgy and having gone and bought a pair of these luxurious shoes and doing a 16K run in them to test them out. And they're called Cloud W. And I don't know what the W means, but the cloud, yeah, it's definitely they're really light and they're really comfortable and, you know, they made the, thir- the 16Ks just whistle past. Ash, thanks so much for that
2: recommendation. Maybe we should be asking the company for royal like <laughs> royalties for producing the podcast. <laughs> probably the two shoe shot sales that they've had since.
0: (laughs) Well, we could do some more of the YouTube and actually do some videos of the feet. But there was also that sort of mindfulness thing of because I actually, none of my running buddies want to run 16Ks with me at the moment because I'm the only one who's training for a half marathon. They just want to do their 10K spurges. So I've been going really early in the morning and having to very much, because I don't listen to music when I run, I just try and take in everything. So it's been, I've been having some really mindfulness related type runs, which has been really, really good for me. Awesome.
1: I can relate to that, Charlotte, the mindfulness. Fantastic.
0: Oh, well, perfect intervention, um, Ellie. Let's move to you. Your, your exercise is going to be cycling. Do you want to tell us a little bit about this big cycle ride that you're about to do?
1: Yeah, so I am training at the moment for a big ride from Newcastle to Noosa, so that's going to be 1,400 Ks over nine days, um, starting at the end of March. I'm riding with about 200 other riders with Tour de Cure, who are a charity organisation who raise money for cancer research, prevention and support services.
0: Fantastic. So how did you get into this and what's your particular passion? Has there been something that's sort of triggered it?
1: Yeah, I started cycling properly last year looking for something to do because I had recurrent navicular stress fractures playing soccer and I realised that I probably should be sensible As you
0: do, and have
1: course. a have a season off and rest it up properly. And so I jumped on the bike and I was training for a big event down in the Snowy Mountains. So I did the La Tap ride in Jindabyne last November, which is 170 k's through the noise down there. So doing lots um, of-
0: Ellie, can I just- stop you at that point that ride is a really really hard ride (laughs) I find that amazing you just sort of take up cycling and you go off and do one of the hardest rides that there is to do you're amazing
1: I do like a challenge Charlotte I thought oh well I better have some kind of goal so I'll pick that one sort of gradually worked up to it through the year but I was doing some long rides and looking for some people to ride with and happened upon the Tour de Cure training peloton down near. St Ives on one weekend and I sort of oh they caught me as I was riding by myself and I got chatting with them at the back and they said oh have a look at our website see if you like what we're doing and you can come and join us for some training rides and the rest is history really I had a look at their website and they seem like a fantastic organization and, and then I joined them for some training training rides and they had sort of similar interests and endurance and so I thought that I would do one of their cycling events so they have a few different cycling events through the year their big one is this signature tour and they do two or three day version which I I thought I might be able to do until my husband very supportively said why don't you do the whole thing and and with permission I, I sort of thought about signing up for the the big one and it's been a fantastic journey for me so far. So tell us a little bit more,
0: what does the big one mean?
1: So that's their, their main event, the Signature Tour. They do that every year around Australia. So it's promoted by Channel 7 and Mark Beretta. And last year, the Tour de Cure raised about $12 million for cancer research. Every year, they've been getting bigger and bigger. So I think they started about 12 years ago, just a small group of cyclists wanting to make a difference. And now they're really a a big organization making a, a huge impact on cancer in Australia. Their mandate is finding a cure for cancer. So they like to fund projects that looking for cancer breakthroughs but they also focus on projects that support patients and families through cancer treatment and, and beyond. So, yeah, it's a pretty inspiring group of people. Within the ride, are you able to select
3: an individual group that you're interested in supporting or is it a matter of everybody connects for the same purpose?
1: Yeah, so everybody's in it for, for cancer, really. They all bring mm-hmm. sort of personal stories and their own agendas to the ride. And most participants have had a family member who's been affected by cancer, and that's their motivation for for joining. I thought I'd like to bring my work experience and my passion for Aboriginal health in to give a, a spin on it, for want of a better term, to raise awareness around the poor cancer outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Australia.
2: Ellie, I'm interested in how you're merging those two for this ride. What what will you be doing along the ride to highlight some of the disparities around cancer outcomes and cancer care between Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander populations versus non-Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander populations?
1: I wanted to share our community's message. So I work at Yarran Eleanor Duncan Aboriginal Health Centre in Wyong on the central coast and I was talking to my own clients with cancer there and we came up with the idea to film some interviews with them and then I spoke to our local primary health network who said they could support me going up on a recce tour of the where the ride is happening itself to interview more Aboriginal people with cancer and the health workers involved in looking after them. So just before Christmas I went on a, a two day road trip to some Aboriginal Health Services in Newcastle, uh, Singleton and Tamworth to talk to them about their experience in cancer. And so we've made some videos and I'm sharing them on Facebook and other social media avenues that I'm quickly become becoming savvy with. I'm trying to do my best to get to know social media now. And it's been fantastic, really, the response. So I guess this is a side project of mine really to raise awareness around Uh, that story and amplify those aboriginal voices themselves so that they can tell the story because talking to others certainly within tour de and other people in my non-aboriginal health working uh, circles uh, not everybody is aware of this gap in cancer outcomes so i really just wanted to share the story
2: what are the themes that are coming up in these videos that you're doing
1: Yeah, they're really common themes. So the cancer survivors that we spoke to talk about their, I guess, difficulty navigating the system. So once that diagnosis is made, it all becomes a bit of a blur and, and they are sort of thrust into really unfamiliar health environments for which that they already feel quite uncomfortable going to hospitals and other health services for cultural reasons historically. And that's very difficult. And there's also sort of a lack of health literacy. So they didn't necessarily understand what was going on through chemo radiotherapy and felt like a, they were really unsupported. So the main Main message, although there are lots of them, are, are really for an increase in Aboriginal health workers to, to support those people through their cancer journey would just make such a big difference. So the people that had that all the way through had a much better experience. One woman in particular talks about that that diagnosis process itself being really quite traumatic on her and her family so she was the main breadwinner and she was taken out you know for months and that sort of creates a, a new episode of trauma in in that family's life uncertainty around what's happening with mum and lack of financial support and things so I mean we know that our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander clients are already have experienced severe trauma through the generations and yeah she commented that that the way that cancer treatment happened for her sort of compounded that.
0: So Ellie if I was to ask you what were the key sort of messages that you have as a take-home for people watching the videos what would those be?
1: Oh, gosh! yeah, there were so many really powerful messages that came through in our interviews with these women. They were mostly women that we interviewed cancer survivors, so I mean, I guess a big one was health literacy. They talked a lot about lack of sort of understanding about what was going on. So one of the elders speaks about growing up on the mission where her school teacher came to school school drunk every day so that lack of education is a really big issue she certainly didn't comprehend a lot of what was being told to her through her cancer treatment as a result of that and interestingly you know she was taught by her parents on the mission not to ask questions for fear of the children being taken away so the the stolen generation is still very raw for some people. Um, and it certainly shapes their view of our health system and that fear of institutions that they might you know, feel really uncomfortable about attending due to past racism and that stolen land and, and children. So the, that impact of intergenerational trauma on their cancer treatment certainly compounds trauma that people have already experienced. One woman talks about, uh, you know, being the sole breadwinner for her family and losing her her job and what that meant for her young children you know severe financial strain and a relationship difficulty resulting from that and the survivorship actually being harder than the cancer treatment itself you know other other women in the video speak about ignoring um, their results and their symptoms um, for a long period of time for fear of what happens next. You know, our cervical cancer survivor hadn't had a pap smear in 12 years. So that importance of screening is is really a theme that comes through loud and, and clear. And these cancer survivors want to encourage others to participate in screening. And the other big theme was that lack of culturally friendly cancer services and, and how it would have been great for Aboriginal health workers to, to walk alongside them through treatment and beyond. And Professor Gail Garvey, we were privileged to interview. She's an esteemed academic at Menzies School of Health Research, um, does a lot of work in, in this field. And, and she talks about improving cancer outcomes for Aboriginal people as being everyone's business rather than just like a, an Aboriginal problem in inverted commas. So, and that we all have that responsibility to you know, facilitate equal treatment. But they're really stories of survival, you know, like Auntie Maureen talks about the power of art and how she, even though she has metastatic breast cancer, she she finds power in her her art. and in her gentle voice she tells others don't be scared, come forward. So she's encouraging people to to talk more about cancer. And, yeah, so they really just wanted to get that message of hope out to the community. Yeah, there's a lot in there.
0: That's very powerful. I mean, and obviously actually has a resonance with people who are not Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, but I think the fact that it's amplified within that community in a way that is... You know, really shocking, on one hand, uh, but at the at the same time, has got so many lessons that we can take with us as GPS. So, what a privilege, Ellie.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was such a great thing to be involved in.
0: So, I'm also interested, Ellie, because you're doing some research with University of Newcastle, aren't you? That is actually related to this topic as well. Can you tell us a little bit more about those?
1: Yeah, so we're looking into ways to increase cancer screening for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So we know that screening rates, cancer screening rates are really low amongst Aboriginal people generally about 20 percentage points lower than the general population so for breast screening Aboriginal participation would be around 37 percent and bowel is is, uh, closer to 20-21 percent and cervical screening is just over 30 percent so really low rates of screening participation and we're looking to find ways to improve I guess acceptability of screening amongst the Aboriginal community so certainly helping to make those screening services more culturally aware, culturally supportive, and also facilitating screening through group bookings is often really effective. Running women's business days and men's business days, sort of celebrating women's and men's health in those um, group settings tends to break down some of the stigma involved in cancer and cancer screening and just to get people talking about it and improving the education around cancer. So we're running a a breast screening study in particular, looking at group breast screening bookings where the women can come along together, dress up the booby bus with uh, pink decorations and come along for a, a lovely lunch together and have the mammogram done and whether that helps to increase screening rates. And we've had some good success so far. I'm struck by
0: the low cervical screening rate. Yeah. How does
2: that compare to the Philippines, Charla?
0: As in the actual, well, in the Philippines they don't have a screening program, so the so it's really really low. But you know, I mean, I could have a completely you know huge conversation about the the rates of it in the Philippines because it's much much higher than here in terms of cancer. It's the third biggest cause of death in the Philippines cervical cancer. Uh, So we just don't appreciate that at all because we've had such an amazingly successful not only screening but prevention program with the HPV vaccination.
1: That's right, yeah, it's incredible. We uh, interviewed Dr Tamara Butler from Menzies Institute of Health Research who are running the screening matters study looking at why Aboriginal women's screening, uh, cervical screening rates are so low and they comment that you know, in Australia, we have this fantastic coordinated national cervical screening program that's so successful and we're hoping to uh, you know, eradicate cervical cancer altogether by 2035. But our Indigenous screening rate equivalent of that of uh, countries without a national screening program at all. So it's pretty striking.
0: The, the, the girls are getting the HPV vaccination though, aren't they? I mean, the the vaccination rates I thought were okay.
1: Vaccination rates, as far as I'm aware, are pretty good. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Has there been an uptake in the self-screening?
1: Yeah. So that's certainly a way to improve screening rates amongst Aboriginal women. Um, Yeah. That's been shown to be very acceptable. And we're really trying to push that within our health service as a good option.
0: Yeah. It's really interesting. i do some work with Lara Royski who works with the Victorian Cytology Service and she's been doing a whole lot of work with trying to improve the the uptake of self-collected specimens from amongst the Aboriginal communities and it's but it's interesting because it's actually been hard to actually promote the program full stop.
1: That's right yeah yeah we found that as well
2: and Ellie, any insights into why that might be, based off the conversations you've had with the communities?
1: The barriers to screening in itself, or or self collection,
2: yeah, or either.
1: Yeah, I think that there are lots of barriers to cancer screening for Aboriginal population. It sort of comes down to a few different pac- um, factors. So can be individual experience sometimes there's fear around what has happened before me perhaps, perhaps, and there's certainly you know a, a higher rate unfortunately of sexual abuse and, and that makes it hard to present for screening i guess financial challenges remoteness aboriginal people are more likely to be rural and remote which is a big barrier i've spoken about health literacy. There's also transport barriers and costs associated with getting to the screening centres. And then you sort of move on to the health professional factors that that relate to feeling comfortable in the screening environment. So a lot of the services that the women go to, they report that they, they don't feel like it's very culturally friendly Uh, and there's sort of no childcare facilities or hours offered outside work and and daycare so that they can attend. I guess there's definitely the social determinants come into play where there's just such disadvantage and low education and employment rates and and that all feeds into prioritising health and wellbeing. Yes, it's an interesting sort of uh,
0: understanding, isn't it? I mean, this goes back to Ash's question about my work in the Philippines where I work in a very poor health, low health literacy community in an area called Laguna in the, in the Philippines. And what I found really interesting with working with those women who had had really no cervical screening before we started doing work with them and their understanding about it, like they actually thought that having a pap smear was being cleaned. Um, so that it was actually about making them clean rather than understanding at all what what it actually did. And so we've been doing a lot of education just about who they are as women and their, you know, and their whole cycle and all of those things as just even just a background to try and get, an understanding of cervical cancer and what that why why you would want to screen for it and what differences it is let alone then the whole issues you raised about accessing services and what that means to a family when it takes them out of workforce and you know all of that that stuff it's not just about the service it's about everything else around it
1: that's right yeah and I, I think for a lot of our clients uh, there's a, a big fear about the diagnosis itself so they'd rather not attend at all uh, there's a bit of a fatalistic view that if you you do have a positive result then you've got cancer then you you, you know that's that's it you're going to die so there's a lot of education that we are trying to do around breaking down that stigma around cancer itself
0: so are the cancer rates for the Aboriginal population different in terms of different cancers from the, the sort of the, the, the rest of the Australian population? Or is it just that we don't do as well at picking them up and accessing them to treatment?
1: Yeah, so uh, Aboriginal cancer incidence is slightly higher overall than uh, non-Aboriginal cancer. Lung cancer is the cancer with the highest mortality for Aboriginal Australians. That differs there. And then followed by breast and colorectal prostate cancer, which is similar to non-Aboriginal Australians, um, but then comes head and neck, liver. So that's more to do with smoking, alcohol and drug use. So there's a little bit of a difference there between the cancers. And then I guess, yeah, because of uh, a few different factors. So you've got the lower screening rates, which then makes... People more likely present, to present with advanced stages of disease and then it's, of course, harder to treat and you have higher morbidity through treatment and poorer outcomes overall.
0: Yeah, so there's quite a lot of challenges there when I sort of hear that. But, but what's sort of good is that there are challenges that potentially we can overcome so hence the need for more money and an understanding of how to implement some of those things that can make a difference.
1: That's right. I think if you break it down into small bite-sized chunks, you know, you can see how the, the issue can be improved. Yeah, for sure. And that's what we're looking at doing baby step by baby step, I guess.
2: Ellie, working in this space, have you come across any specific challenges or recurrent things that have come up that have really frustrated you and if you have how have you worked through those?
1: That's a really good question yeah I think we um, certainly working in the Aboriginal health sector you're always faced with challenges and I think from an outsider looking in other GPs might think that those challenges relate to clients but it's really the opposite I find that the clients themselves are so grateful, friendly, really beautiful uh, to work with. The challenges faced by us in Aboriginal health relate more to resource shortage, funding shortages, staff shortages, and I guess sort of politics in terms of where does the funding come from and who's responsible for what. They're definitely challenges that come up weekly for us and I think that's what has prompted me to get involved at a broader level to try and advocate in this space just to sort of I mean where you see a problem I think it's it's actually pretty easy to get some other like-minded passionate people in the room and and work out how how to solve it so that's been a, a goal of mine over the last four or five years working in Aboriginal health recently.
2: Go for it, girl. Go for it. (laughs) So really having a a solution-focused and collaborative mind frame
1: exactly right I mean it's easy to complain about anything <laughs> I think we're all really good at seeing the bad things about uh, about our jobs but if you if you look at a problem and then think oh you know who do I have to talk to to learn more about this how can we start to solve it or improve it and who are the people I need to approach to get this fixed really that's how we handle those challenges day to day and month by month
0: and I really appreciate the fact that you've not only done that but you've actually now taken it into this sort of step of the development of some videos and marketing the problem to have a heightened awareness by the general joe blow member of the australian community about these issues and what we need to do better because it's a bit like a whole lot of the stuff in health people just make assumptions that things work smoothly
1: yeah, that's right. And I, I do have to be so grateful to to De for this. I mean, they have been uh, fantastic in the way they've responded to my ideas. I'm really a newbie sort of swanning in and shaking things up a bit, but they have embraced this idea and really are working with me now to try and get the message out there. So hopefully there'll be a bit of media cov- coverage on the ride itself about this story and, you know, I'll work with them in the future to, I guess, help them more of a focus on increasing funding to Aboriginal research and prevention and support services. That's a longer term goal, but they're certainly very willing to work with us on that, which has been fantastic. And I think a testament to their organisation is to really, I think that's why they've exploded and continued to grow over the last decade because they just embrace new ideas with gusto. So it's been really lovely.
2: The thing that I love about the work that you're doing there Ellie is that you're changing the focus when you think about the name of an organization like that which is tour for a cure the mind often jumps to expensive treatments at the after diagnosis or at other end stages of cancer and we know as health professionals that cancer is a grouping of different illnesses that aren't all the same and we do have cancers that we can cure and cancers that we haven't yet got cures for, but that the biggest bang for our healthcare dollars is preventing it occurring in the first place and also preventing it in populations that have the higher social determinants of health and therefore higher rates of cancer is extremely important and you know almost I would argue more important is is putting that money into prevention rather than the cure end and so I really love that you've been able to to change that focus in, in the way that you have done.
1: Yeah, well, I guess they, they've been really receptive to that and and I think that they understand You know, if we look at the cervical cancer example, you know, we're close to being able to cure cervical cancer in Australia, but we cannot do that without addressing the Aboriginal health cancer gap. So if you break it down into those sort of messages, it's easy to see that that's a good way forward.
2: And so great that, you know, you're just a GP out there advocating for that in in such an organisation.
1: Yeah, power of just
0: a GP. Awesome. (laughs) Yeah, bring it on. (laughs) Okay, so I'm
3: interested in the specific details. So the media release that you sent us, which was beautiful, and we'll attach as show notes. How do you do those steps? So specifically from a publication and a leadership and getting what you're passionate about out to other GPs and other community members, how do you make those steps and how does it go from a, not what you're doing, but selling Girl Guide biscuits at my local (laughs) high school or primary school to something that's really big and getting a lot of media attention and really can make a difference?
1: Oh, that's a great question. And and I'm really just flying by the seat of my pants on that front. I, I don't know any anything about media or social media. I've had a, a friend who helped me draft the media release and she works in marketing, which is um, great to have her help. But I do work on a lot of committees and health committees and I know a lot of people. And so I gradually sort of use those contacts to help share my Facebook page so i created a facebook page and then one of those followers suggested that i needed to jump on instagram and so i've now got an instagram and a twitter Account And they all have different audiences. It's been really interesting for me to learn about that. So I've approached some media outlets locally through email and emailing them the media release with the video links and had some good traction that way. And the story on Facebook has grown through the Aboriginal community sharing and also my health and GP contacts. So I guess it's sort of just following those little leads everywhere to create that network and a, biz, a bit of a buzz around the story. So it's been interesting to me to sort of try and put myself out there when that does not come naturally to me at all, especially the little training update videos. I find it quite intimidating to film myself and and give a bit of a rundown of what I've been doing. But I I think just from feedback, that sort of helps people get to know the real me and what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And, you know, I'm just a real person trying to do something good. So it's been pretty organic, just the way that it's grown.
2: So basically developing relationships and friends that can help you in doing the things that you struggle to do yourself.
1: That's right, yeah, using friends and contacts and, and networks, which has pretty much been how I've operated in the health advocacy space anyway. So that's just been something that I've built on through learning how to talk to people and share important messages, yeah.
2: So on that note, what are your tips for... Making friends and influencing people.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think just to show some enthusiasm, really, moved back to the coast five years ago, Central Coast. We lived in Canada for a while uh, while my husband did his fellowship in haematology. I came back and was a new GP on the coast and approached the Primary Health Network um, about you know, whether there was anything I could do in a non-clinical capacity to, at that stage, supplement my income because I was um, had young kids and looking for some after hours work. And I started re- reviewing their health pathways and then very quickly they realised that I, you know, would probably say yes to anything they, they asked and I ended up joining some of their committees, including their GP collaboration unit panel, which oversees integration between Central Coast LHD, the hospital and primary care more broadly and that has fed into meeting a lot of people through hospital and health and pretty much I guess any meeting that I attend I'm a bit at risk of taking on new projects um, just because you know you can see that there are great people out there doing really good stuff so Oh Ellie, I
0: don't think any of us relate to that problem at all, do,
1: do we? <laughs> you can, Charlotte. I know you can.
0: <laughs> I, I think it says of, you know, the fact that we're so lucky. We love what we do. And when you, as I, I mean, I've heard you say very much one of my mantras is that there's not much point in complaining. You might as well try and go and do what you can to solve it. We might not actually solve it, but at least trying is better than not feeling like you are making a difference and it's the making a difference that is, is like that bit of rocket fuel to our
1: lives. It sure is and I, I have spoken to older GPs who've worked in this sort of game on health committees for many years and there's a, a balance you need to keep between um, you know, w- w- sit, staying on these committees and, and watching the same discussions happen year in and year out and nothing ever changes versus sort of just sparking the right people coming together and, and really watching things change very slowly over time. But to expect changes overnight, I've realised is um, unrealistic. Yeah.
2: And I guess sometimes having that fresh spark and change over time is good for committees that are long standing because you can see that it's not just the same people saying the same thing. If you've got this we talk about this a little bit on the podcast, this idea of, you know, making sure that there's new people coming through and that you're mentoring the people underneath you and then that can also demonstrate that it's not just you who th- thinks this way, it's, it's the whole generation of GPs that feels similarly as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. So just anything that you think the, 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 the GP in suburban Australia might take home from this as well?
1: Yeah, well, I guess like it's important to know that most Aboriginal people access mainstream general practice for their health care rather than Aboriginal health services like ours. So, you know, there are people coming to your practice and you may not know about it. So just asking the question, do you identify as Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander is really important. I've been a victim of not practising what I preach and I, I was horrified recently to uh, have a, one of my long-term patients tell me her, her heritage after four years and everybody knows that I, I um, my passion is Aboriginal health, but I, I hadn't actually asked her the question, and she hadn't disclosed to our reception when she first registered with the practice. So it's just important to keep keep that line of communication open, and once people feel comfortable, they can tell you their story. It's also important for us to make sure we have a culturally competent practice. So if you're not registered to the PIP Indigenous Health Incentive Scheme, you can sign up through that and ask your local PHN for help with, with that and also becoming a, a culturally friendly service. Yeah, it's really easy to do.
0: Thanks, Ellie. And for me, that's a never make assumptions. Exactly. Well, I think that might lead us nicely into sharing of our clinical tip of the week Ellie I, I'm, I'm at risk of just continuing to talk to you and hearing more about some of your leadership stuff but maybe we could get you back on after you've done your tour to cure and help you with some more marketing um, afterwards because it sounds like something that all of us um, would love to to hear more about but what about a clinical tip
1: Oh thanks charlotte. I well, are there are a few that I'd like to share, I guess because we're talking about um Aboriginal health. We always use the um, red book version of National Preventative Health Guidelines uh, for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So that's available on the RECGP website and it's specifically about preventative health for Aboriginal people. So that's got some interesting differences there. It's a really great reference tool, particularly if you're doing health checks for Aboriginal people, which we haven't had a chance to talk about. But the other clinical tip is, of course, just uh, going out for chocolate in the park with your gp colleagues Uh, every time i get together with my team i learn so much Um, we should do that at least once a week now that sounds like a clinical
0: tip that a lot of people could take up Um, and well let's you know put forward the health benefits of that dark chocolate (laughs) um beck what's your clinical tip of the week thanks
3: my clinical tip of the week, and we've touched on it before, and we've actually just touched on it again now, is to come back to health pathways again. And because I actually keep coming back to it and keep remembering how awesome it is. And so, in my area, so southeast Sydney, they've just done a disaster management health pathways. And it's actually been really useful and quite good to touch base with in quite a few consults over the last month so they are ever evolving and ever adapting and i would encourage people if they use it every day or if they haven't been on it for a long time to go back and have a look at what's new and re-engage
0: thanks beck that's really helpful Ash, do you have something you'd like to share with us?
2: I do. I'm doing a little bit of extra education in terms of medical nutrition management, and one of the resources that I came across which was really cool was a website that visually has patient information things on it. One of them was the Hand Guide to Portion Control. So it's not ideal or absolute, but it gives a bit of an idea about using palm size in terms of meat, service, um, meat servings or using the, your fist in terms of looking at what's considered half a cup of grains and fingertip portions for spreads of, of butter or margarine and a tablespoon in terms of, you know, peanut butter. And so it's a kind of a nice way that you can teach people how they can assess their own portion sizes.
0: Cool. That sounds eminently practical to everybody. It's like the fingertip
2: unit we used for skin, remember?
0: Yep, yep. That sounds sounds really cool. Um, so I I'm going to be a bit boring with mine, depends on what you think of boring of course, is I've got a book to share which is called The Leadership Code and it's to, it, it's a, more like a newsletter and it's got stuff that was shared with me when I went to a Women in Leadership Course, and it sort of talks about five essential rules that govern what all great leaders do, and they they actually talk about it as being like a balanced meal, and that you need to have a whole lot of um, the things from each of the things to be a good leader. So, if people are interested, it's by a guy called Ulrich U L R I C H, and just Google the leadership code, and it will come up for you. Awesome. So. I fear this means we're, near th- we're at the end and we're going to then need to descend send you off, Ellie, to go and have an amazing bike ride sharing these stories of um, Aboriginal people and their journey with cancer to hopefully really be able to make even more of a difference in the fundraising and wish you all the best and enjoyment of that ride.
1: Thanks so much, Charlotte. Thanks for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Great fun.